Well, hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. I am Will Stockdale, Ministry Associate with Ministry to State. I'm here with my good friend, Robert Rob Burt Hassler, uh, who is currently on vacation in Texas, but is willing to step away from that and come uh, come online and do a recording because there is a lot to talk about. There's a lot that has been happening since last week. Last um, Wednesday, we did a special post-election day recording of where we were. And since then, uh, in some ways, a lot and nothing has happened. <laughs> a lot of things have changed. There's been a lot of events. Uh, there has been everything from the Pfizer uh, uh, drug that has been uh, seems to be approved. You have the Biden task force that is coming out and the different agenda items that he is putting together. You get considerations of the church and how the church is going to be handling a uh, a new administration as seems most likely. I want to be hesitant here. I understand that there's a lot that is going on, a lot that is still to be decided. Um, there's going to be litigation regarding this election, but it does seem, and for the sake of this podcast, we're just going to assume that it's going to be a Biden presidency because that is where all indications are pointing right now for all intents and purposes. Biden is the uh, official president-elect, although it has only been called by the media outlets. So that's going to be the direction that we're going. Robert, kick it over to you. How have you been? I know you got a new pair of Tecovis boots. I did, man. That was my first stop when I got to Texas. Let's go pick up a new pair of cowboy boots. You what know, it's just... You go with? Uh, I, what's the one, the, the lizard skin one? Yeah, Asian water monitor. Dude, they're nice, man. Beautiful. Um, the uh, it's interesting being in Texas as opposed to the DC area in a post-election landscape. I I told my wife this the other day. It, I don't know how this happened. It it wasn't intentional, but I have traveled out of the DC area for the last two presidential elections, um, like immediately after. So in 2016, I actually had scheduled a work trip back to Michigan. I actually flew out of uh, Reagan Airport the day after the presidential election in 2016. And that was a surreal experience. It's, it was wild, but um, same thing happened here. We, we drove down to Mississippi and we were in Mississippi for um, the, the days immediately after the election and then drove into Texas uh, the other day. So just a really interesting thing. The number one takeaway, and it's probably, it's obvious to most people, um, but I still find it surprising all the time. Uh, this, the general sort of, yeah, when it comes to politics, like even in, in at, yeah, it, well, everywhere. Like we, so we drove from Virginia to Mississippi, but we decided to take sort of a longer route. So we actually went to Tennessee, then we went down to Alabama, and then we cut across Alabama. Um, and then we drove from uh, Mississippi to Texas through Louisiana. And so kind of did that swing through some of the Southeast. And, you know, yeah, you've got a really uh, polarizing election, one that was sort of dominating all of the media space and stuff like that. And for the most part, like people were just kind of like, oh yeah, that happened. You know, in DC, you got people whose jobs, their careers are on, on the line during election. So it's just higher stakes kind of thing. People there are just more invested in politics. It's their career. Um, and just, it was kind of funny just to like talk to people about the election. They're just like, you know, they've got opinions, they've got their takes, but most, for the most part, it's back to work as usual. <laughs> right. Which is really refreshing, right? It's like kind of nice. Well, and you had told me also that local elections were much more prioritized, at least as the road signs were indicating. Yeah. So like, I thought this was interesting and this is pure anecdotal. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but, but isn't everything anecdotal now? I don't know. It is. That's true. You know, like if you're driving around the DC area 
and you go to, you're driving on the, on a busy street, you know, the medians will be packed with, with signs for local elections. Uh, right. So the people who are running for school board, people who are running for state rep, all those kind of things. But one thing I notice in Northern Virginia, at least, is that I don't see a lot of those on private property. Um, private property tends to be where you find all the presidential signs. And then you got to go to the, like, the corners, the medians to find the local election stuff. When I was driving through the Southeast, and the only reason I bring this up is because there was so much attention uh, in the media. I know I just, re- I just watched the recent um, documentary that uh, AEI's Initiative for Public Faith put out about you know, uh, the common good and uh, sort of a, a politics for the common good. Very good documentary. Um, but a lot of, one of the things they emphasize on that is that you know, we need to spend way more time on local elections. We need to be investing in those races. We need to be investing in those, those debates uh, because that's where we can do the most good. And the, the implication is that that's something that people haven't really paid attention to, um, that, people, that the national politics has, has consumed our, all of our attention. And there's probably some truth in that. Um, obviously, national elections have, have taken a, you know, a massive space in our, in our public consciousness. But as I was driving through the Southeast, I mean, like, there are people's private properties, their farms, their, local, their storefronts. Um, you can tell their family-owned businesses. I mean, that's where you find the local election signs. And yet you didn't see any really, comp- comparatively, you didn't see very many Biden-Trump signs. Um, and so... Like when I, I think I texted you this, is like, you don't need to tell the people in rural Alabama why the race for superintendent is important. Like they get it. Um, and it, it's just kind of, it's, it's another one of those maybe data points that you can kind of point to and be like, are people disconnected from each other? Do the people that are running these think tanks who live up here in DC, you know, we sort of have a vision of what folks down in, in the Southeast part of the country or in, in the middle of the country think and feel and and how they react, but is, is it, does it line up with reality as much as maybe we, we recognize, you know, in line with that, uh, this election, all the votes have been cast. Uh, they're being tallied. It looks like we have a, uh, this Biden administration that is putting together a task force with their focuses that they have for a number of issues. Everything from, COVID is the big one. I mean, that's going to be the main one. And with that is economics. And and of course, the economic considerations are being shaped right now by COVID and what is going on. Immigration uh, as well is going on. I know that the uh, Equality Act you had just mentioned is going to happen. Uh, It sounds like in the first 100 days, that's something he's looking to push forward. I don't know if you had any thoughts based on the people that you saw were a part of his transition task task force and i mean is there some scandal right now and maybe we shouldn't get too far afield into this but uh with the pfizer drug i mean uh cuomo goes on the air yesterday and basically says uh it's a shame that this pfizer drug has come out during the trump administration uh because trump's going to bungle it and we need to wait to roll it out and I mean, there's so many different things that can be said in response to that. But one, and I, I don't know if he realizes this, but that's the reason people feel like this election may have been stolen from them. And I don't, I don't believe that it was. But when, when someone comes on like that, the governor of New York, who has had clear hatred of President Trump, uh, says something like that, then, then people's suspicions in their heads are completely confirmed. Right. 
You know, I think it's interesting that um, some of the priorities listed uh, for President-elect's administration, uh, the things that he wants to tackle right off the bat. Yes, COVID is, is occupying a lot of that space because COVID obviously is, is the most pressing thing that's, that's facing the nation. Um, I just think it's interesting that two of those things were, you know, wanting to get the Equality Act through, you know, if they win the Senate and they have, they have the, the means to do so, um, or at least implementing some of it by executive fiat, we'll see. Um, and then reversing uh, President Trump's initiative uh, to figure out what they're going to do with CRT education and training within, it, you know, those are two things that don't really have a ton to do with COVID um, or not at all and are far more uh, priorities of the, or the, the priorities of the, the farther left that Biden sort of ran on not putting in power. You know what I mean? Like Biden sort of said, I'm not going to be like that. And then it's interesting that his couple of his first policy proposals or the first things he wants to accomplish um, are priorities of, of those left of him. Um, so yeah, I think it does uh, confirm a lot of suspicions in people's heads that maybe the maybe all of our politicians don't have at all times have the common good in mind that there's a lot of politicking to do and it's a power struggle and it's going to be really hard for any president to come in and, and combat that. I mean, how many people run for office saying I'm going to go and shake up Washington and then become the very thing that they promised to, to go to fight against. Um, I think that uh, when it comes to the, the COVID stuff, I do think it's interesting that this could have been a moment that really did bring the unity that people want out of an election so bad. This is a pandemic that affects all of us. It goes from coast to coast. It's, it's not localized somewhere, although some regions have it worse than others. Um, and, you know, any development in the vaccine, anything that could possibly uh, bring a relief economically, physically, emotionally, you know, to the American people, it doesn't matter who's in the white house. That's a, unequivocal good. And it's just interesting that the first news that breaks after this election, you know, we're doing a lot of hand wringing. There's a lot of people going on TV going, oh, I don't know. We might want to wait on this. And that just to me does like what you said, confirm a lot of suspicions. What did you think of, I sent you that quote um, by the, the guy that's going to be on Biden's task force. What did you, what did you make of that? Ezekiel Emanuel. Yeah, that one. Ezekiel Emanuel, he is, for those of you who don't know, he is Rahm Emanuel's brother. Um, he Who is, also, let me just, I'll just, who also had a bad quote on news this, this past week. What was his? His, his was the one that basically you need to learn how to code. Oh, they were gosh. talking about people who lose during their jobs in retail and, and manufacturing. And he basically was like, yeah, we'll pay for it, but you got to learn how to code, which is not a, not what people want to hear. <laughs> Incredibly impressive man. Uh, he went to, uh, I mean, Amherst, Harvard, Oxford. He pr was a professor at University of Pennsylvania. He, uh, and I, I think this may have come from this. He wrote an op-ed or he wrote an article. They're all op-eds in the Atlantic, but he wrote this thing for the Atlantic and said that he doesn't want to live past 75. And he cites this data for why that's the case. This was back in like 2014. But he, he does in that article say that he is against euthanasia and I mean, it's both kind of one, drawing things out too too far, which, you know, it was a concern. And then also uh, 
euthanizing people when they get to a certain age. He wasn't for that. But I think on its face, that's kind of a concerning tweet because uh, the comment was that uh, people who live to be 80, 90 years old, that they're not really living very productive, good lives in society. So what's the point of continuing on? It's interesting that the languages of efficiency and productivity were so uh, stark. Yeah, I don't that think that just... sends much comfort to people. And um, oh yeah, you had mentioned that part of Biden's task force is reinstating the critical race theory education. And um, we've talked about this before. We've mentioned critical race theory in the past. Uh, it is a it is a view that is in its fullest sense. Uh, combative against the Christian worldview and the Christian understanding of man and man's relation to God and to each other and why they are valuable. There, there is a legitimate reason, I think, to be concerned about the government doing critical race theory education with its employees. Uh, that is not a, a good thing when critical race theory is what it is. I, I wish Christians were more uh, aware of its philosophical underpinnings and its philosophical problems. Uh, I don't think they are. I think that they uh, like it from a cultural sociological perspective, but an actual rigorous, rational, logical, analytic understanding of what it is. It's lacking, I think, with people who are in favor of it and don't understand how problematic it is. So those are two areas. I don't want to be totally negative. I mean, I was out in Lincoln Park on Saturday and right across the street from where I live. And people were popping champagne bottles. And every time someone popped a champagne bottle, people started clapping and cheering. There were cars that were driving around, honking their horns and celebrating. And while I, you know, I didn't do that. Uh, and I wouldn't have, like I said, I didn't vote for either candidate. So I, I wouldn't have done that if Trump had won. It was kind of beautiful, though, to see people so excited about a new administration and the hope that is there. Maybe we'll get back to that at the end. But there was something sweet about the hope that people had. And we can disagree with those hopes. We can say that those hopes are misplaced. But to see humans as hopeful and optimistic about um, something is is a good thing. And it's a, it's a thing worth harnessing. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I saw... We we should unpack that some more because I think that it's it's interesting. The um, I did see one tweet. Kind of go back to your theme though of you know let's let's celebrate good when it's when we can find it. And um, one tweet that I saw that I thought was interesting that was going viral um, that was being shared by some of my friends here in Texas that uh, there were quite a few people uh, African American people on Twitter who were saying, you know I don't know why I don't know maybe if I'm just sort of you know in the honeymoon stage or what have you, but the American flag doesn't represent the same thing as it did to me a, cu a couple days ago. Like sort of the, the animosity, I guess that these, that these individuals on Twitter were feeling about um, America, their nation, uh, the flag, the symbols of, of their country didn't represent the same sort of uh, evil or racism or things that they, they attribute to it earlier. And um there's a long conversation to be had there, but I do think it's a good thing when more people feel included in the American project. I think that's a good thing. You know, we, we want people not to cast away the things to, to build their own. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the revolutionary mind and we, we should really be careful and temper that. Um, I, I much prefer the, the strategy of, of 
civil rights activists like Martin Luther King, who, you know, the, the, the promissory note that we're here to cash the check that we were promised at the beginning um, and really incorporating people in, you know, uh, franchising people. That's, that's the, the strategy that I think we want to see going forward. And, and I was happy to see a lot of that on, twi- on Twitter and, and on social media. Yeah. The, the celebrations, I don't know, maybe I had a, maybe I'm a more cynical than you will. I don't know. I had a very uh, sort of disappointed approach to a lot of the celebrations. I was seeing videos, aerial footage of the party that was hanging out outside the White House. Um, I was discouraged because for a long time, uh, people have been told not to gather. They've missed out on weddings and funerals and call, you know, school, um, all kinds of things, but because they were told you know, being in a crowd of X amount of people is dangerous. We saw the first sort of wavering on that when the uh, protests started happening for um, George Floyd's murder. Um, and there were a lot of people who said, no, this, this, this incident merits the risk of, of COVID transmission because the, the, this matter is more important. That's fine. You can have that logical reasoning. I just think it's also a shame when the same people who are celebrating the parties going on outside the White House people passing champagne bottles with each other, complete strangers, that, get, that gets a pass, but other things don't. So I, I, I think there's a lot of people who've experienced real heartbreak from not just the pandemic, but the effects of the COVID protocols who feel that some people can, can flout the rules and some can't. And I think that that's really discouraging. And that's, that's not going to bring about the unity that we want yeah, in this no. country. I'm I'm with you. I think that the people who were celebrating the mass gatherings, what I was talking about were more isolated people were following protocols. The what happened outside the White House was was very hypocritical, especially there was this guy, I mean, you know, blue check mark on Twitter. It was eleven hours apart. He tweeted out how excited he was about seeing people gathering and partying outside the White House. And then after the Notre Dame victory over Clemson, he said this really isn't good, especially with heightening. And it's I mean, the only thing that you can do is you can try to make the logical reasoning that this election is more important than, you know, the students at Notre Dame getting to celebrate a, a win over the number one team in the country. Um, personally, I know what I would rather risk COVID for, oh. um, but uh, that's, uh, that's just me. Um, and I, I think this is a good transition, though, into a, a bigger conversation we want to have specifically about the church and, and its reaction to this, this election, because we spent a lot of time leading up to the election about, you know, trying to stay in the moment, understand what was going on, but also really trying to point, you know, past it. Say, what does the church look like the week after the election? Um, What's the tone? What's the language going to be like uh, when we do have a new administration um, and we know the decision of the 2020 election? Well, that's sort of common. Uh, It's interesting because there's a lot of space now to talk about these things. And it's interesting to see um, some of the different reactions. I mean, the the celebrating, the partying is was not limited to uh, non Christians. It was not limited uh, to people who who don't work in ministry and who do. I mean, um, what was some of your? I mean, I guess a, a more general question. You know, what do you think the church's response is post election? What have you seen it been? What do you? How would you like to see it? You know, would you like to see it differently? Would, would you like it to see it change? What's sort of your, 
you know, we're a week out. What, what are you thinking? I went to uh, worship with a friend of mine in Falls Church on Sunday. And it was just an incredible sermon. And it was a sermon that I felt like I'd been needing to hear all summer. And he very diplomatically, very pastorally addressed the the state of the 2020 election as it stood on Sunday. And then he spent this sermon just exegetically, pastorally, thoughtfully describing what, who the church is and the importance of the church and the focus of unity on the church. And what I love about his sermon was so oftentimes when I hear sermons about the unity of the church, it, it usually is the unity while on mission of the church that we have a similar mission. And that's not wrong, but it's secondary. He spent the whole sermon really emphasizing the unity of the church as it exists, as the body of Christ, as united to Christ, as in this something we talked about last week, as the glorious body of Christ, that it is seated with the right hand of the Father, that um, we are called to love each other. And then he talked about the mission, but he he did such a beautiful job of making sure that the impact of the church on the world was thoroughly conditioned on its existence as the body of Christ, that it could only impact the world for good as it is the light of the world, as it has received that light of the world from Christ. That was a message that I'd been needing to hear and just was just, you know, <laughs> thirsty for, because it, it seems like that just, I couldn't get that out. I couldn't hear that from people. And I didn't understand why. Um, anyways, it really blessed me. And I was very encouraged. A buddy and I were talking afterward and you know, he gets the feeling that his pastor is doing this very good job of just trying to protect the church from these forces on both sides that are trying to collapse this particular denomination into fitting into a particular mold of being in the world, whether that's, you know, we need to talk about how the election was stolen from Trump, or we need to talk about how badly Trump handled, co you know, whatever. Um, and he just did such a magnificent job of protecting the church and, and building it up, um, which I think serves the purpose more than anything of encouraging Christians to live out their faith well and fully. So, I mean, on a positive note, that was just a, a wonderful, a wonderful Sunday service. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of positive things. Uh, you know, right when we hit record, I saw Tim Keller tweeted out a great thread about um, we can only, we can only be effective. I, that's, not, that's not the language he used. So I, I, you know, I don't want to attribute that sort of paradigm to him, but basically what he's trying to say is that, you know, social justice, the work for, for social change is only an outpouring of right relationship with God. And so um, we can never think of the two as sort of like these parallel things that the church does, that the church makes right relationship with God and we do social justice, but that there is a, for lack of a better term, a hierarchy where uh, the church has first things that it's committed to um, and then there are reasonable uh, expectations of how those of how that right relationship is played out in our in our life. Um, and you know, this is just true when you think about how the church doesn't really, as a body, doesn't have a policy platform. Uh, we have 
axioms, we have principles that we would like to see reflected in culture, but we don't write legislation. We don't do anything like that. Uh, I think that's an, it's always a good thing to remind ourselves. And I was thankful for Tim Keller to tweet that out. Um, I know that he's had a lot of controversy with his Twitter kind of leading up to the, to the election. So I thought that was great. Um, I, I'm with you. I think that I, I, I'm always hesitant about a lot of that stuff because my experience, and I'm guilty of it too, like of all people who, who, is, who are guilty of it, it's me. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of energy by great pastors to, to remind people about holiness and worship and obedience uh, to Christ. And only, you know, only with that can we, can we go out and, and have an impact on, on the culture. So people like me who are type A, overachievers, we live in these, you know, urban centers where there's a lot of activity. You know, I, I kind of tend to hear that and I go, yeah, 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 I know that. I know that. Like, I got that covered. Like, let's go, let's go do culture work. And I'm now, as I'm getting older, as I'm watching myself struggle with issues of obedience and holiness and purity in my own life that's being magnified by my new positions as a father and a husband, um, as a ministry leader, I'm starting to realize that like, I'm not even close to having some of those first things down, like not even close. And so if I'm not even there on the most basic things, right, I'm not going to be any agent of change uh, in my culture. I'm, I'm only going to cause more chaos, more cause more havoc. Um, and I think the, the point there is not to be uh, fatalistic. And it's not to say that God and the Holy Spirit can't use even your, your failings because that's, I don't, I want to be careful against saying something like that. But I, I think the point is that it's so much more organic than we care to recognize. We, we tend to be so policy procedure oriented, linear thinking. If I do this, then this will happen. And I think what I'm starting to realize is that the things that I've, that I do, that I do point back to and say, I think that is a positive change in my neighborhood, right? Are things I didn't intentionally do. They're only things I rediscovered weeks later and be like, Oh, that note I left at my neighbor's door. I just was like, Hey, this is a polite thing to do. I don't want to look like a jerk. I didn't realize the sort of, you know, influence it would have on that person. You know what I mean? And I think this goes back to the point that, that, uh, Mako was making like in our third episode is that like the people who go, who say, I'm going to go change the world, you know, and that's their mission rarely do. It's, it's the people that really were committed, you know, to personal holiness, obedience, um, right relationship with God, right relationship with their church, that the, the sort of outflowing of that was that they had this profound effect. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, with that, you would send me an article a blog post by Kevin DeYoung this morning. And he really, I think, um, hit the nail on the head here with uh, a, a wise Christian response. And by Christian response, I don't mean like Christian politics response, like as a Christian human, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And the title is, uh, When You Say Nothing At All. And his point is, look, it's good to be informed. It's good to know what's happening. But we can be very radical by actually not always feeling the need to comment so heavily on 
politics. And I think um, I, I was very appreciative of the article. I thought it was very good. I thought it was um, a good reminder for people of, again, it was the same thing that I heard from the sermon on Sunday of what is our primary identity? Uh, who, who are we? Whose are we? And then what do we do? And how do we live? And those, those are downstream from this, this first thing. Yeah. Not, I mean, to bring it back to what I was kind of saying at the beginning about my, my excursion through the Southeast, like the thing that was radical for me was not that uh, the folks that I talked to had a, could articulate a different vision of politics that I was used to. What was radical to me was that they didn't live their lives consumed by politics, that it was just another thing that happened to them that they just sort of moved on from and they had more important things to care for, like their jobs, their family, you know, that's the, that's the radical thing. That's the thing that blows me away. It's not that like, oh, this person who I have pre you know, prejudices against or I have expectations about, they have a different vision. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't think about that. It's that they live their lives differently. And I think that there's a lesson there uh, that I want to take away with how I approach uh, politics. And I thought Kevin DeYoung's piece was hitting, was hitting that um, for me. And that, um, oh yeah, like, a uh, decision comes out about foreign policy, like I don't actually have to make a comment on it. Um, I actually don't have to do it. And I, I made a joke about this at, on Twitter that uh, af on Saturday when they did officially call it uh, for President-elect Biden and like you could just feel like everyone like rushing to Twitter. And I was like, man, I got to get off this thing and just go watch college football. Like I, that's much healthier, much better. And you realize that, that that's probably, uh, there's probably a lesson there uh, to take away with us as we move on past this election. So I think that's a, a good place to end for us to land the plane today. So thank you all for listening, for tuning in. Uh, Robert, hopefully next week we'll be able to have you back in DC for recording, or you might still be on the road. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, thank you all for listening. Like I said, you can follow us on Twitter at RD Hassler and at Stockdale. Will, please leave us a review, uh, like us, share us on social media. Send us a DM, you know, slide into the DMs. Let us know if you have any questions, anything that you want us to talk about or discuss. And we'll see you next week.